Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Internet Radio. Today is Friday, April 6th, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Two road trips in three weeks. Twice we got to go to Rocky Top, Tennessee. Two road trips in three weeks have made me sort of weary and, and is really cramping my schedule. Tonight we are going to commence with our presentation of Bertrand Compare's sermon, Christianity in the Old Testament. This is part four. There will actually be five parts to this series. Whether I complete this series or whether I complete my commentary on Ecclesiastes next week is yet to be determined. I will indeed do my best to complete both of these presentations over the next two weeks and then think about beginning a commentary on the Gospel of John which is of course the next portion and and, and along with his epistles the final portion of our commentaries on the New Testament. In the future I might revisit Matthew and Mark, having done them rather early and uh, probably not quite having the discipline that I developed over the last few years. I, I look at the notes sometimes and I think that I probably could have done better. So maybe that's on the schedule for sometime in the 2020s. Yahweh willing, my ministry continues that long. And in reality, I would pray that it's not necessary, but you never know, right? This is Christianity in the Old Testament, part four. In the first part of this series, we describe the meaning and the use of the word Catholic by early Christian writers. And we demonstrated that originally the term described the reception and acceptance of the Christian faith as coming from the scriptures of both the Old and New Testaments or as the early Christian writers saw them all of the scriptures handed down by the Apostles and the word Catholic comes from the Greek word Catholicus from the component words kata and halos which mean down whole. In that original sense we then asserted that identity Christians are the true Catholics since all of the modern Christian denominations of all the modern Christian denominations only we understand that both testaments and both covenants apply exclusively to ourselves and of course when I state identity Christians I'm referring to Christians of white European descent because it's for those people that these covenants were made then in parts two and three of this series we began a presentation and critique of Bertrand's Com Bertrand Compare's sermon on the Christian nature of the Old Testament. Doing this, we hope to expand somewhat 
on Compare's original sermon while adding our own opinions and outlining the reasons for our differences wherever we may disagree with him. I actually had a Twitter bimbo this past week tell me that my Compare, my notes on Compare's sermons were stupid because she has absolutely no real grounding in what Christian identity is and because she basically idolizes Bertrand Compare and esteems him to be infallible. When I offered to actually discuss the scripture, she ignored me. Imagine that. One topic we expanded on in part three of the series was the sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham. While Compare described it as a foreshadow of Christianity from his own perspective and said little that we had any serious disagreement with, our Christian faith is often condemned on this account that a man would sacrifice his own son. Our pagan adversaries often complain that human sacrifice is Jewish in nature. So we were compelled to expand greatly on Compare's original sermon in this regard. We agree with our pagan adversaries that sacrifice, human sacrifice, is evil. However, last week we took the time to demonstrate, or I'm sorry, probably two weeks ago when we presented part three of this series, we took the time to demonstrate that human sacrifice is also pagan, and that ancient pagan literature has many instances of human sacrifice, which was looked upon favorably and even blessed by pagan gods. We gave as examples the sacrifice of Iphigenia by Agamemnon, the king of the Danans, and the sacrifice of, I believe it was nine of his own sons, to Odin by the ancient Swedish king On, or Ain, A-N-E, as he's sometimes called. We also illustrated the fact that these heathen kings sacrifice their own children for their own personal gain. But Abraham sacrificing Isaac had nothing to gain. He had everything to lose since Isaac was his only heir. His only heir. I'm sorry. So which of these ancient sacrifices are Jewish in nature? In the end, we must admit that the heathen sacrifices are worthy to be called Jewish. But Abraham's sacrifice was selfless, a token of his obedience to God rather than to his own lusts for money and power. So in the end, Abraham's beloved son was spared. And Abraham was greatly rewarded for that obedience which he displayed. This is the essence of Christianity. That we please our God through obedience to his will. And our willingness to sacrifice ourselves for the benefit of our God and our people.
Abraham was already promised that his own people would inherit the earth and he was willing to give anything even his most loved son on their behalf that is a type which was later fulfilled by Christ as Yahweh God indeed gave his own most loved son on behalf of his own people that was the theme throughout much of Bertrand Compare's sermon up to this point that while a suitable animal was provided to die on behalf of Isaac ultimately Yahshua Christ himself was the Lamb of God who died once for all on behalf of his people as Paul of Tarsus attests in Hebrews chapter 10. So as we proceeded with Compare's sermon up to the point where we had left off he correctly endeavors to show how the Hebrew feast days all pointed to and served as a type a plan a schematic a model that's what a type is for the ministry of Christ and in this regard we have discussed the Passover the first fruits during the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Weeks which was also called Pentecost while we had minor disagreements with some of Compare's remarks we certainly agree with him in principle and for the most part his insight into these things as they correlate with the gospel has certainly been remarkable here we shall continue with our presentation and critical review of Christianity in the Old Testament by Bertrand Compare this is digitized from your heritage and prepared with critical notes by Clifton A. Emmeheiser. The Your Heritage volume of Compare's Sermons is also known under the title The Complete Works of Bertrand Compare. It is available from Kingdom Identity Ministries. Now continuing with Compare from where we had left off in part three of this series. Have we now completed, I'm sorry, have we now completed our review of Christianity in the Old Testament? Far from it. Let us now turn to Isaiah chapter 53 verses 3 through 7, which even our various churches all admit refers definitely to Yahshua Christ. Now, of course, that would not surprise most Christians, but Compare illustrates the point in order to condemn those churches because they reject the Old Testament even though the Old Testament prophecies again and again of Yahshua Christ now a lot of the churches in my experience love to point out at least some of the prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament but then they completely ignore the entire purpose of Christ as it is outlined in the Old Testament and they swear that God changed his mind in the New Testament which is utterly ridiculous if you're a true Catholic you accept the whole the entirety of the scriptures handed down by the Apostles you don't imagine that half of them are wise or that God changed his mind 
especially where those same things are indeed expressed in the New Testament. But the denominational churches, they ignore those things as well. Continuing with Compare. I will correct a few errors in translation in it, meaning in Isaiah 53 verses 3 through 7. And citing the passage, he says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of pains, and the King James Version has sorrows, but Compare's is better, and acquainted with sickness, and the King James Version has grief, but Compare's Version is better. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our sickness, and carried our pain. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and Yahweh laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And in response to this, Compare replies, Indeed, what can the New Testament add which is not found here? Remember, Isaiah wrote this almost seven and a half centuries before it was fulfilled. And here Compare took two words found in the King James Version, sorrow and grief, and changed them to pain and sickness, and his changes are valid. The Hebrew word which the King James Version translated as grief is actually sickness. So while the word for sorrow may mean that, it can also mean pain, and in this context pain is better being coupled with a word that means sickness. Clearly the allusions to pain and sickness elucidate the human aspect of the Messiah. Being God, he still felt pain and sickness. Now, Compare responds with an appropriate condemnation of the denominational clergy. How can clergymen be so blind? Most of them quote this passage from Isaiah at one time or another. They even preach that it is referring to Yahshua, or Jesus Christ. Then they preach that the Old Testament set forth a different and false religion which had to be abandoned to make way for the New Testament and Christianity, and that is, in effect, exactly what they do. And this was why we prefaced this presentation of Compare's sermon with an exhibition on the original meaning of the term Catholic as it was used in the earliest Christian writings. Identity Christians, such as Bertrand Compare, are the real Catholics because they accept the entire faith and all of the covenants of God as being applicable to themselves. But of course, only the true children of Israel can do that.
So by necessity, a real Christian can only be an identity Christian. A real Catholic can only be an identity Christian. Now Compare turns to the many Christian promises found in the Psalms. And he says the Psalms make many references to Yahshua and his work of salvation. Psalm chapter 2 contains a clear reference to him. I will declare the decree. Yahweh has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. Now we would translate that as the nations for thine inheritance. The nations promised to Abraham. And the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear. Only the children of Israel were called to be his servant. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Not all of the 150 psalms found in our Bibles were written by King David. However, many of those that were written by him contain two important aspects. One relating to David as a man and the events in his own life. And these serve as an example of the attitude towards trials and salvation, which all Christians should have. Then there is another aspect relating to David as king, as a type for Christ the coming king. Found within this aspect are many statements and prophecies which David did not quite fulfill, at least completely, but which could only refer prophetically to Christ himself. We will see some of those here. Later, in the New Testament, according to the Novum Testamentum Grece, this second psalm is cited in reference to Christ in the Gospels of Matthew, Luke, and John, in the Revelation, and in the book of Acts, and in Paul's epistles to the Romans, Ephesians, and Hebrews. Now Compare continues with another of the psalms. And he says, Psalm chapter 22, I would say that's the 22nd Psalm, is generally admitted to be a prophetic picture of the crucifixion of Yahshua. It is too long for me to quote here. Read it for yourself and you will see that it describes the crucifixion. Now, here we will take the time to read the most pertinent Christian passages of the 22nd Psalm. We have the time because we are splitting Bertrand Compare's sermon into four parts, so we have four times more time than he had. This was a very long sermon, even by Bertrand Compare's standards. This 22nd Psalm is also attributed to David. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring. Now, the word Elohim can mean my judge, or in plural, my judges. And I believe that where Christ quotes this psalm in the New Testament, that that would be the better interpretation. However, here, David is making an appeal to Yahweh as his God. And that double meaning actually affords us a convenience in basically interpreting the passage either way. Yahshua Christ was indeed God, and he was setting an example for men, but it was his judges who deserted him at the crucifixion. He cannot desert himself, unless, of course, he was only setting an example for men and displaying the weakness of a man. The word here is actually not Elohim, but El, and could be interpreted, My God, or My Judge, My Judge, why hast thou forsaken me? And still be an appeal by David to Yahweh his God. So, that's my opinion of this line from the 22nd Psalm as it appears in the New Testament. And I think I expounded on that when I did do my commentaries on the Synoptic Gospels, or at least on one or one or possibly more of them. I don't know if I hit on it in all three. I don't even know if this passage is cited, if, if it's recorded in all three. It might be. might be recorded in all four. Now the word Elohim I'm sorry I'm repeating myself. This passage Psalm 22.1 was actually cited in part, quoted in part by Yahshua Christ in reference to himself as he was about to expire. Another aspect of this psalm reflects the attitude of those who witnessed the crucifixion at that same time. And we find that in verse 6, verses 6 through 8. But I am a worm and no man. Now these are the words of David in reference to himself. A reproach of men and despised of the people. And that also describes the state of Christ at his trial and crucifixion as he gave himself over to the will of his enemies. So it says in verse 7, All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted on Yahweh that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing that he delighted in him. In respect to these words, we see in Matthew chapter 27, verse 43, words which the apostle attributed to the priests as they mocked Christ. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. 
for he said, I am the Son of God. And a few verses later, the apostle quotes Christ as he cited the opening verse of this same psalm. Then continuing a few verses later in the 22nd Psalm, from verse 10, I was cast upon thee from the womb, thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me around. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, a potsherd, a shard of a broken piece of pottery. And my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. And while these verses seem to describe elements of the crucifixion, and even Peter used the allegory of Satan being a roaring lion, as we see here in verse 13 of the 22nd Psalm, they are not explicitly cited in that respect by the witnesses of the Gospel. We do see moments in David's own life in the historical books which these words do describe. However, what follows never happened to David. So, as we have said, this aspect of his words must be prophetic of Christ. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look on and stare upon me, they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. But be not thou far from me, O Yahweh, O my strength. Haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. There is no doubt that these words were intentionally prophetic of the passion of the Christ. And now as we continue with the psalm, we shall see a prophetic explanation of the purpose of the Christ, which only applies to Christians from a vantage point of Christian identity truth. From verse 22, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Ye that fear Yahweh, praise him, all ye the seed of Jacob. Glorify him, and fear him, all ye, the seed of Israel. For he is not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither has he hid his face from him. But when he cries unto him, he heard. My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise Yahweh that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember, shall remember. Everywhere Israel is scattered. And turn unto Yahweh. And all the kindreds of the nations, those same nations of Israel, the tribes of the nations, shall worship before thee. 
For the kingdom is Yahweh's, and he is the governor among the nations. All they that be fat upon the earth shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him. And none can keep alive his own soul. A seed, not multiple, a seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to Yahweh for a generation, or properly a remnant. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that he has done this. That prophetic people that shall be born were indeed the dispersed children of Israel found throughout the nations of Europe and the East at the time of the Apostles. And for that reason, the Apostles went to those places in search of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That people that shall be born are the barren that bearest not. Now Compare continues with another psalm, Psalm 40. Psalm 40, verses 6 through 10, again prophecies of Yahshua, as it is recognized in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 14. Don't these New Testament Christians ever read the New Testament? In other words, Compre is mocking the denominational churches for not realizing all of the many connections between the New Testament and the Old that the New Testament is meaningless without the Old. While they consider themselves New Testament-only Christians, which is basically an oxymoron, he says, Yahshua certainly did fulfill these words of Psalm 40. Sacrifice and offering thou did not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. Burnt offering and sin offering have thou not required. Then I said, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. Lo, I have not refrained my lips, O Yahweh. Thou knowest I have not hid thy righteousness within my heart. I have declared thy faithfulness and thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth from the great congregation. During his ministry, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 9, Christ actually quoted very similar words found in Hosea chapter 6. So he said, But go ye and learn what that meaneth, meaning learn what the saying means that I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He referred to that same passage of Hosea with a shorter citation in Matthew chapter 12. But although it was prophesied in Deuteronomy that Israel would eventually have an earthly king, there was no prophecy concerning David himself in the earlier writings. So where he wrote, in the volume of the book it is written of me, that too can only be in reference to the coming of Christ, 
which was prophesied throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Now Compare continues to proceed through the Psalms. He says Psalm 41.9 is a prophetic saying, Yeah, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. In John chapter 13 verse 18, Yahshua quotes this verse, telling the disciples that the betrayal by Judas Iscariot is the fulfillment of this psalm. Now, David had similar experiences in his own life. Saul started out to be David's friend and Saul turned on him. His own son later turned on him and sought to remove him from his throne and take it over. But nevertheless, David was a type for Christ, so many events in his life were used as prophecies that they would also happen in the ministry of the Messiah, and this is one example of that. This was also recorded in Mark chapter 14, verse 18, where Christ himself had said that, Verily I say unto you, One of you which eats with me shall betray me. Compare continues, Psalm 45, verses 6 through 7, refer to Yahshua. Thy throne, O Yahweh, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hateth wickedness. Therefore, Yahweh, thy God, that anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Compare says that this is quoted word for word in Hebrews chapter 1 verses 8 and 9 as applying to Yahshua. Paul, applying this prophecy to Yahshua Christ, also informs us that Yahshua Christ is the ultimate inhabitant of the throne of David which had which David had once occupied and only he could have it forever. Again Compare continues Psalm 68:18 refers to Yahshua's deliverance of the dead from their previous captivity by the powers of evil, saying, Thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captivity captive, thou hast received gifts for men, yeah, for the rebellious also, that Yahweh might dwell among them, the rebellious of course being the children of Israel. This psalm is quoted by Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 7 through 10 explaining its reference to Yahshua. We can also compare the final verses of Psalm 68 to the revelation of Yahshua Christ where we read, Sing unto God, ye kingdoms of the earth. O sing praises unto Yahweh, Selah, to him that rides upon the heaven of heavens which were of old. Lo, he does send out his voice, and that a mighty voice. Ascribe ye strength unto God. His excellency is over Israel, his strength is in the clouds. O God, thou art terrible out of the holy places. The God of Israel is he to give strength and power unto his people. Blessed be God. Thus we read in Revelation chapter 11, a parallel to Psalm, to those verses in Psalm chapter 68 or the 68th Psalm 
And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord, and of his Christ, and he shall reign for ever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks, O Yahweh God Almighty, which art and was and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and has reigned. Next, Compare continues and says, Psalm 69.9 refers to Yahshua's single-minded devotion to doing his Father's will regardless of the consequences and says for the zeal of thine house has eaten me up and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me now Compare says that John chapter 2 verse 17 and Romans chapter 15 verse 3 explain that this verse applied to Yahshua why don't these New Testament Christians read their New Testament? Then they can see that it so frequently refers to the Old Testament for confirmation of its truth. And while this reflects David's attitude, it was not fully manifest until it was manifested in Christ. The zeal of thine house has eaten me up. Now Compare quotes a psalm where David, who had no master in Israel when he wrote these words, must have been writing in reference to Christ. Psalm 110 verses 1 and 4, referring to Yahshua, says, The Lord said unto my Lord, <coughs> And we will explain that phrase momentarily. Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And in verse 4, Yahweh has sworn, or the Lord has sworn, sworn in the King James Version, Yahweh has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Compare says in Matthew chapter 22, Yahshua quoted this psalm in proof of his divine nature, and Peter also cited it as such proof in Acts chapter 2. And in Hebrews chapter 5, chapter 6, and throughout chapter 7, Paul quotes it as an authority in reference to Christ several times. Now, it is our opinion that if we took the time to understand what was the Melchizedek priesthood, we would see that David himself, not being born of the firstborn line of our Adamic race, was not really qualified to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So writing these things, David must have been speaking of the coming Messiah, which he calls here his Lord. Since when he wrote these things, he himself had no Lord in Israel except Yahweh. Psalm 110 verse 1 contains two different words for Lord. So when we 
cited Psalm 110 when we said, The Lord said unto my Lord, in order to illustrate a problem with the King James Version. The first instance is from the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh. The second is the generic word Adon, which literally means Lord. It's a synonym of the word Baal. So the psalm, sh and, and it's also the word from which we get Odin. So the psalm should say, Yahweh said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, because Adon is simply a title that means Lord. Yahweh said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand. As it is recorded in three of the Gospels, Yahshua did indeed cite this verse referring to the divine nature of the Messiah, who was prophesied to be a son of David. And he asked, If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Properly, a son can never be Lord over his own fathers, who are always his superiors. Honor thy father. Therefore, only Yahshua Christ is Yahweh God incarnate as a man, and therefore only he can be the root of Jesse, as he is described, in yet another prophecy of Christ in Isaiah chapter 11, a prophecy which Compare has not yet mentioned. And the root and the offspring of David, as he is similarly described in the Revelation chapter 22. And therefore, he is both David's son, and David's Lord. And David wrote as much in reference to him. So Compare correctly states that Yahshua Christ referred to this psalm as proof of his own divine nature. Concluding his exhibition from the psalms, Compare says, there are also several other identifiable references to Yahshua in other psalms. But we have covered that field enough, and we agree that these psalms alone should be sufficient proof of the Christian nature of the Old Testament, which should cause anyone who is truly in pursuit of truth to further investigate our Christian identity assertions. The 27th edition of the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Grecae has an appendix listing New Testament references to passages in the Old Testament. And in this regard, it lists cross-references to passages in roughly 127 of the 150 Psalms. While we would probably not count them all, since some of the connections are pretty vague, the list is nevertheless a lot longer than the several significant instances which Compare made examples of here. So now he continues and he says, Before we leave this point, let us note how thoroughly it is explained in the book of Hebrews in chapter 9, and he cites verses 1 through 12, and he says, Then verily, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and an earthly sanctuary, 
For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick, and the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, and over it the cherubim of glory, shadowing the mercy seat. Now these things were thus ordained, and the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of Yahweh. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. This being Comparé's version. I believe the King James Version has sins, and the Christogenian New Testament also translates that same word as errors, because every sin is an error, a mistake committed by men, whether purposely or not. He offered for himself the blood and for the errors of the people, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect, as pertaining to the conscience. But Christ being come, a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And indeed, the entire purpose of Paul's epistle to the Hebrews was to serve as a proof that the Messiah had come and had done away with the need for the Old Testament rituals and the Levitical priesthood, which were the remnant trappings of a covenant that by necessity, on account of the failures of the people, had been replaced with a greater revelation from God, a revelation which had been promised throughout the Old Testament itself. It was planned all along that the Levitical priesthood and the Old Kingdom would fail, and that is also expressed in the books of Moses. Yes, it is, several times. So Compare continues in response to the passage in Hebrews, and he says, The religious ordinances of the Old Testament were all symbolic of the true redemption which would be accomplished by Yahshua at his first coming. Now do you see why Paul said in Galatians 3.24, The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. The first three major parts of the law are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments. Establish rules of conduct which one must follow if his conduct is to be righteous. We all fall short of such good conduct and do not gain righteousness by our own actions, and the law condemns us for this. The fourth division of the law, the ordinances which set up all the religious rituals and ceremonies, points out that righteousness can be gained only through the death of another in our place, paying the penalty for our sins. As we have seen, this clearly symbolized that the real sacrifice, not the mere symbol of it, was that which would be made by Yahshua at his first coming, 
in his crucifixion and resurrection. And I must admit that while I have not yet developed a full thesis on the subject, not taking the time to individually investigate every passage where the words commandment, statue, law, and judgment appear, I would divide the laws slightly differently than the way Compare divided them here. The terms commandment and statute are often used interchangeably and describe both moral laws and the laws that pertain to dress and general conduct, as well as the religious laws that refer to the conduct of the priesthood, things which are done away with in Christ. The Old Testament seems to distinguish only three categories, called statutes and judgments and laws in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 46, but only statutes and judgments in Leviticus chapter 18, and often in Deuteronomy. Only statutes and judgments, but sometimes the commandments and the statutes and the judgments. You could look all this right up in your concordance. I have yet to notice a verse which explains that there are four distinct categories. The same word translated in the King James Version as statute is often also translated as ordinance. So that lends to a confusion which is not easily sorted out. Look up in your concordance under ordinance or ordinances and you'll see chuk or chuka and that's the same word that's often translated statute or statutes. So we really can't distinguish statutes from ordinances so easily as we might suppose. My own division of the law would seek to distinguish between moral commandments which transcend the Levitical priesthood and the Old Testament dispensation and the laws which were designed to maintain Israel as a distinct kingdom, regulating dress and certain aspects of conduct, civil conduct, and the ordinances of the priesthood related to the maintenance of that kingdom, which includes all of the sacrifices and ceremonial rituals. And then, of course, there are the judgments, which are the punishments for crime and for sin. There's a law against stealing your car, but then there's a judgment which tells the thief that he must replace your car with two and a half cars or five cars, depending on the circumstances of the theft. I know originally it applied to cattle, to sheep and steer and goats, but it has to apply to cars as well. This last group, the sacrifices and ceremonial rituals, Compare calls religious ordinances. Christians should understand that it was the design of Yahweh God from the beginning to redeem man from sin himself, Christ being the lamb slain since the foundation of the foundation of the world and the first promises of that redemption are found in Genesis chapter 3 
So when the seed of Abraham through Jacob Israel was chosen, so that Yahweh could manifest his will in the world through them, the Old Covenant Kingdom was formed and regulated in a manner which would make evident his purpose and express his plan of redemption in Christ. This is evident, as Compre has already explained, in the sacrifices, in the substance of the sacrifices, as well as in the organization of the feast days. The feast days revolve around the agricultural calendar. However, their assigned significance is a definite pattern of the stages of redemption and the manifestation of Christ as it is described in the Gospel and in the Prophets. Therefore, the feasts themselves comprise a prophecy of Christ, which Compre is about to continue explaining. He's already explained the significance of the Passover, of the first fruits offering during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and of the Feast of Weeks, which is the first fruits of the wheat, often also called Pentecost, especially in the Greek copies of New Scripture, of, of the Scripture, which are the New Testament and the Septuagint. So Compre continues and he says, We cannot go on forever with our discussion of Christianity in the Old Testament. However, there remains one part of it which is as important as all that we have studied this far. These are the three fall festivals, the Hebrew, no, the Hebrew New Year, Rosh Hashanah, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and the Feast of the Tabernacles, all symbolize the second coming of Yahshua. Let us now explain these in detail. And actually, we can seemingly go on forever with the discussion of Christianity in the Old Testament. However, what Compare means is that this is a very long sermon, one of his longest, and if he wanted to, he, would, he could have continued it for a much longer time. As we had presented in the earlier parts of this sermon, the first festivals of the year, Passover, Unleavened Bread, and Pentecost, were all related to stages of Yahweh's plan for the redemption of Israel in Christ as well as to the ministry of Christ. Now he continues with the calendar, <coughs> and he explains that the Hebrew day began at sunset. Each month was a lunar month. <coughs> I'm sorry, I need a drink. Oh, we caught some um some allergies, I guess, in Kentucky that resulted in sore throats and <coughs> sore throats and congestion, and I've been fighting it off throughout this presentation, but it's catching up to me after an hour. Compre continues with the calendar. And he explains that the Hebrew day began at sunset. Each month was a lunar month, always beginning with the new moon. 
Today we calculate the time when the moon is exactly opposite from its position at the full moon and this is the astronomical noon moon. Here I must <coughs> there I go. Here I must interject the opinion <coughs> that this is how we in modern times determine when the phase of the new moon begins. When you don't see the moon, right? But that is not necessarily how it was in ancient times, as it is not explained in scripture. However, Amos chapter 8 indicates to us that we should be able to see a new moon where it says, Hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy. It's the con condemnation of the rich, right? Even to make the poor of the land to fail, saying, When will the new moon be gone, that we may sell corn, and the Sabbath, that we may set forth wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel great, and falsifying the balances by deceit? Of course, the rich were rich because they were robbers. If one cannot see a new moon, as it is reckoned in modern times, then one cannot really ask, when will the new moon be gone? And to us it makes more sense that the ancient new moon was the first sight of the waxing crescent. The waxing crescent means that it gets a little larger every night until it's a, a half moon and then a full moon eventually. And the waning moon eventually shrinks un until the day that we can't see it because it's, as Compré said, too close to the sun. So we would agree with Compré where he continues to speak of the modern new moon because he also noticed this. And he says, however, the moon is not visible at all on that day, the day that we in modern times consider a new moon. It is too close to the sun to be seen, even at sunset. The Hebrews counted as new moon the first day that at a, that a thin crescent could be seen just after sunset. And this comes on a day later than the day marked new moon on your calendar, meaning on our modern calendars. Sunset of the day of the new moon, of the first month of the year, was their New Year's Day. They posted, and I'm going to disagree with that, they posted watchers on nearby hilltops or on towers in the cities to watch for the first glimpse of the thin crescent new moon. When the watchers saw it, they notified the people of the town by loud shouts, and the people joined in the shouting and blowing horns. In fact, we still do something much like this, but we delay our New Year's shouting and horn blowing until midnight. First, the Hebrews had a new moon celebration every month, and that's evident in Scripture. Just look up new moons in your concordance. And actually, watchers in towers and on the walls of towns were employed rather consistently throughout the ancient world, and they had multiple functions, another which was to actually watch for invading enemies. But here, concerning the date of the beginning of the year, I cannot agree. If the year began on the date of the first new moon, then there would be a swing of several weeks from year to year in the agricultural calendar,
enough to make it impossible to plant in time for the Feast of Weeks, or to harvest at a time agreeable to the Feast of Tabernacles. This is also why the errant Easter calculation of the modern churches swings by as much as 35 days each year. Or maybe I should say 34 days. There is a 35-day range each year on which Easter may fall according to the way in which the Roman Catholics and the Protestants have never broke from this. According to the according to the way in which the Roman Catholics calculate the date for Easter. And and I believe the way the Jews calculate the date for Passover is is pretty much close to the way the Catholics um to the to the way that the Catholics calculate Easter. It's not exact. I don't really know the differences, but they're both quite convoluted. There is no verse in the Old Testament that tells us exactly what day on which the first month of the calendar begins. But from the earliest times, the Greek writers distinguished a difference between the civic month and the lunar month. The Israelite society, being an agrarian society, we would assert that the vernal equinox, the first day of spring, and not the phase of the moon, determine the first day of the year. And that way, a calendar consistent with the agricultural phases, which don't change, generally, could be maintained. There is a longer article at Christogenia which explains this, which is titled Dating the Passover, as well as an older article titled On the Passover. I really think that I wrote the second one forgetting that I had written the first one because they're about four years apart, but they're both just as valid today. I stand by them both. So I'll leave them both online. Compare continues. We find the ordinance governing it in Numbers chapter 29, verse 1. And in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, ye have a holy convocation. Ye shall do no servile work. It is a day of blowing the trumpets unto you. The answer is... He says, if you are wondering about this reference to it as the seventh month, the answer is that the Hebrews had two separate calendar years. One was the civil year, commencing with the month Nisan in the spring. The other was the sacred year, commencing with the month Tishri, which was the seventh month in the civil year. And here Comparate makes an assertion, but he does not support it with scripture that there's like a a day of awe in Leviticus chapter 23 or a day of shouting I don't know if there's enough evidence in scripture that 
we can determine that that was the first day of the year on a civic calendar and Compre doesn't supply any scripture. Rather, the seventh month corresponded approximately with the hour October and that was the time of the fall feasts as well as the main harvest of the agricultural year. As he continues, we should bear in mind that all of the stone circles of the ancient world apparently had a way of determining the vernal equinox, which we consider to be the first day of spring, and which, I believe, was the first day of the Hebrew calendar, the first day of the Hebrew year. Originally, the Romans also had celebrated the um, first day of their calendar year at the vernal equinox or thereabouts and they later changed it to the date that we're familiar with after the winter solstice which begins our modern year January but here Compare says on a small scale the new year ritual was watchers scanning the heavens looking there for the sign of the end of one period of time a year and the beginning of another. What is symbolized on the great scale is that we are to watch for the sign in the heavens marking the return of Yahshua, ending this age and beginning the next. Now, this is basically the Feast of Trumpets that's being described, and there is really um, nothing in the Bible that I know of. I could have missed something, I'm sure, I'm not perfect, that designates this as the first day of some sort of civic year. And we can't take for granted that the modern Jewish practice is actually the ancient practice. We can't take that for granted. Just because the Jews in modern times consider Rosh Hashanah or the Day of Shouting or the Day of Blasting which is the Feast of Trumpets just because they consider that their civic calendar the, the first day of their civil calendar today the Jews aren't the people of Israel the Jews aren't the children of the kingdom they may have easily brought in some pagan practice, some pagan practice that they always had as Edomites and Canaanites. That's very possible. So I don't know why Compare seems to have followed that. I don't know. But I think it's bullshit. That's my opinion. Until I see scripture. <clears throat> and he didn't provide any. Speaking of this um. Feast of Trumpets, because that's really what he's talking about. Yahshua explainers for us in Matthew chapter 24, verses 30 through 31. And then shall us appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven, with great power and glory. And he shall send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, it seems very plausible since 
the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Weeks figure <coughs> so significantly in his first return <coughs> I'm sorry in his first advent in the first advent of Yahshua Christ it seems very plausible that these fall festivals indicate for us to some degree how the events of the second advent of Yahshua Christ are going to play out. And we have the Feast of Trumpets, which is the announcement of the return of Christ, as Compare indicates here, as he interprets prophecy, I would fully agree with him, and he did very well to do this. And then we have the Feast of Tabernacles, and then we have the Day of Atonement, and Compare will explain them as well. And here he says, as they watched anxiously for the sign of the end of the year, and I don't necessarily agree with the year part, right? So we watch hopefully for the sign in heavens which will show us that Yahshua is on his way and nearly here, leading the vast armies of heaven, come to overthrow all wickedness and set us free from its power. This will end the sinful age in which we have been living and beginning in the next beginning the next age of true and complete righteousness when Yahshua shall rule all the earth as king of kings and we would agree that the feast of tabernacles also looks forward to the, to the day when Yahweh our God sets his tabernacle among men and that is the return of Yahshua Christ that is the Christian expectation which is first seen in Leviticus chapter 26 and I will set my tabernacle among you and my soul shall not abhor you and I will walk among you and will be your God and ye shall be my people that's a promise if the children of Israel were to remain obedient to God the promise is repeated in a prophetic sense in Ezekiel chapter 37 in regard to a new covenant moreover I will make a covenant of peace with them and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them speaking to the houses of Judah and Israel and I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore my tabernacle also shall be with them yeah I will be their God Judah and Israel and they shall be my people and the nations not the heathen and the nations shall know that I Yahweh do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore now Compare continues and he says today we who really believe his words remain alert to perceive the signs of his second coming in accordance with his warnings in Matthew chapter 24 verse 42 watch therefore for in such hour as you think not the Son of Man cometh the importance of this sign cannot be overrated so strongly and repeatedly does the Bible state it in Matthew chapter 25 verses 1 through 13 Yahshua tells the parable of the ten virgins and their lamps 
five of them being wise and keeping their lamps not only trimmed but also filled with oil in readiness for their master's return from his wedding supper the other five were foolish and had no oil for their lamps he concludes this parable by saying watch therefore for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the son of man cometh and of course the oil of the lamp signifies a knowledge of god as oil allows the lamp to be lit and to emit light and christ is the light of the world continuing with compare in luke chapter 21 verses 44 through 46 Yahshua also said, And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life, and so that day come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come upon them all that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch ye therefore, and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Paul tells us in Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 4 through 6, four through six But ye brethren are not in darkness that the day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. The day won't overtake you as a thief if you're doing nothing wrong, even if you're surprised at his coming. Remember, all of this, Compare says, was symbolized by the Hebrew New Year ritual in the Old Testament, and we would instead call that by its real name the Feast of Trumpets and not take for granted that it was actually a New Year ritual because I don't think there's any record of that even if the Jews call it that today what have the Jews ever told the truth about <laughs> what have they ever not lied about Compare says the return of Yahshua which is the dearest hope of the Christian, will not be a source of joy to those who hate Yahshua. Both Old and New Testaments alike tell us of his enemies' terror as they see their judgment and punishment coming. Zechariah chapter 12 verses 10 through 11 says, And they shall look upon him whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him, as one is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem. And in light of Revelation chapter 19, we cannot be so sure that the Feast of Trumpets in the real Feast of Trumpets, which is to come. We can't be so sure that those trumpets aren't going to announce war, that they aren't a bugle call to war, and the call to arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. That's usually why you heard trumpets in ancient Israel on 
the other 364 days of the year. John, in his Gospel in chapter 19, cited that very passage in Zechariah in reference to Christ, where he wrote, And again another scripture saith, They shall look on him whom they pierced. Then in Revelation chapter 1, describing the imminent return of Christ, we read, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Those clouds are the armies of heaven. There should be no doubt that Zechariah was also speaking about the day of the wrath of Yahweh and the ultimate advent of the Christ. The phrase day of the Lord appears 18 times in the Old Testament prophets and it most often refers to the same day described in the New Testament as the return of Yahshua Christ, which is described in a very same manner. In many additional references in either testament, it is also referred to as the day of wrath, the day of vengeance, the day of the Lord's anger, or the day of judgment. Now Compare describes it from the New Testament in a prophecy parallel to what we have seen in Zechariah in the Old Testament. So they are indeed parts of the same book which express stages of the same Christian faith. Compare says, Revelation chapter 6 verses 15 and 16 add, And the kings of the earth and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondsman, and every freeman, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth upon the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now, I esteem Revelation chapter 6 to be in our past. However, it is certainly a model for what's to come, since at the wedding at, at the wedding supper of the Lamb, we see the same men being eaten by the birds of heaven, the chiefs and, and, and the captains in the field, and all of the armies that oppose Christ, all of the mighty men. Their flesh is eaten by the birds of heaven as it's described in Revelation chapter 19. Now Compare explains this passage in his own interpretation, and he says that as the book of Revelation is entirely symbolic, the mountains and the rocks of which he speaks are nations and the communities into which the enemies of Yahshua have infiltrated. In calling upon these nations and cities to fall on them and hide them, they will be seeking protection by trying to pass as just ordinary members of these nations and communities, denying any double allegiance to another nation, race, or religion. Some of these Canaanite Jews have deceived us by this means, and they will try also to, to deceive Yahweh, but without success. And now we will answer that from Compare's um, view of the scripture. And of course he is correct in identifying the enemies of Yahweh our God. 
But the prophecy of Obadiah forebodes the destruction of all the other aliens who have infiltrated the nations of Israel, as well as the Jews. In verses 15 through 18, first it prophecies the destruction of all the non-Israelite peoples. For the day from Obadiah, verse 15, for the day of Yahweh is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, the aliens of the nations which are gathered by Satan against the camp of the saints, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. In other words, when you see a nigger in a Land Rover, someday it's going to belong to a white Israelite. Then it describes the destruction of the Edomite Canaanite Jews in verse 18. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. They are the fire come down from heaven. And the house of Esau for stubble. And they shall kindle in them and devour them. And there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for Yahweh has spoken it. There are other scriptures which inform us that all non-Adamic nations shall be destroyed on Yahweh's great day of wrath at the return of the Messiah. In agreement with our assessment of Obadiah and these other prophecies, Compare himself admitted that all of the beast nations, as he called them, the non-Adamic nations, shall be destroyed in the same judgment as the judgment against the tares, which he perceived as describing the Edomite Jews in his sermon, Gathering the Tares. And there he had said in part, this gathering of the individual tares among us I'm sorry, I'm distracted, is exactly parallel to the similar gathering of the beast nations in this same judgment. Now, I decided to quote this passage this evening because sometimes some of the things Compare taught seem to have been in conflict with this. And Compare was sort of torn sometimes between dominion theology teachings, which are certainly incorrect, and exterminationist teachings, as they've been called by our enemies, those who are opposed to this truth. Compare was to a point in conflict, and that's because he believed that the millennium was in the future. He believed that Christ would come down and rule for a thousand years and then all of a sudden somehow Satan would come out of the pit and overpower Christ and there would be a great war and 
at that time would all of the enemies of God and all of the non-Adamic nations be destroyed. But Compré believed that during the millennial rule of Christ, which he saw as being in the future, that Christ would rule over the beast nations and try to conform them to the law and that he would fail. That's what Compré believed. And I think that's because he really didn't understand that the line concerning the, the resurrection shouldn't really be in Revelation chapter 20 and that the millennial rule of Christ actually happened as Christianity was the prevailing religion in Europe for a thousand years. That's when the millennial rule happened. And now, in our present day, Satan has gathered the nations against the camp of the saints. And that we established in our commentary on the Revelation here in 2011. And of course, I am even more certain of the veracity of my interpretation of that chapter now than I was in 2011. I haven't budged from that belief one bit. And I certainly won't, because I'm sure it's correct. So Compare said, concerning the final advent of Christ and the day of the wrath of Yahweh, this gathering of the individual tares among us is exactly parallel to the similar gathering of the beast nations in this same judgment, meaning that they all go to the lake of fire. And he cites the same passage that I always cite in relation to this. Yahshua prophesied it in Matthew chapter 25. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations. And he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then he kind of skips ahead. Then he says, Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he kind of skips ahead. I'm sorry. And he says, Then shall he say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now Yahweh didn't create anything that was cursed. That's why I believe that all of the non-Adamic races come from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They are part of the rebellion against Yahweh by which the fallen angels corrupted his creation. Their destiny reveals their origin. Compre says, of course there must be a division, separation, and discrimination, to say it plainly. This is the purpose for which Yahshua came. In Luke chapter 12, verse 51, Yahshua says, Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth. I tell you nay, but rather division. Now he continues with the, feast, the next feast on the Hebrew calendar. The next fall festival was the Day of Atonement, on the tenth day of the Hebrew month Tishri. 
it was the most solemn and and that I'm sorry it was the most solemn of all the festivals and it carries the deepest symbolism in the entire Bible before we can consider it in detail we must learn the identity of a fallen angel named Azazel Azazel actually means I think it means goat God and I will check that out before we continue with this topic next week we only have um, two more paragraphs remaining this evening Compare says you will not find Azazel's name mentioned in the King James Bible although it is there in the original Hebrew the entire story is not given in the books of the accepted canon of the Bible so we must turn to the book of Enoch for the many of the details we start with Genesis chapter 6 1 through 4 as it reads in the Hebrew <coughs> I'm sorry and it comes to pass that mankind and he has Adamites in, in parentheses had begun to multiply upon the face of the earth and daughters had been born to them and the sons of God see the daughters of men that they are fair and they take to themselves women of all whom they have chosen. Now, as we shall see, Compare will cite the Ethiopic Book of Enoch to substantiate his claims. We do not promote that book as being canonical, since it contains many interpolations and is actually several books concatenated into a single work. However, his assertions here are substantiated in the fragments of Enoch found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which we hold in much higher esteem. Compre shall elaborate on this topic as his sermon nears its conclusion, and for that we will have to wait until our next and final presentation in this sermon. For now, Compre says... The fallen ones, and he has the word Nephilim in a parenthetical remark, the fallen ones, or Nephilim, were in the earth in those days, and even afterwards, when sons of God, and here he makes another parenthetical remark, he says, sons of God is mistranslated from the word Nephilim, meaning fallen angels, and this we will take issue with. When sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they have children born to them, they are the heroes who, from of old, are the men of renown. The fallen angels who followed Satan into rebellion were the ones who left their first estate, or condition, as we are told in Jude, chapter, verse 6, and with that we totally agree. The King James Bible says there were giants in the earth in those days. But this is a pure mistranslation, as the Hebrew says, the Nephilim were in the earth in those days. The meaning of Nephilim is fallen ones, obviously the fallen angels who had gone into rebellion under the leadership of Satan. And here Compare makes a serious error. While he is correct that the word giants in Genesis chapter 6 is indeed Nephilim, a Hebrew word which can literally mean fallen ones. 
he is wrong on the phrase sons of God. For that, the Hebrew of the Masoretic text has a phrase which literally means just that, Beni Elohim, or sons of God. No manuscript that I am aware of has Nephilim in place of sons of God in Genesis chapter 6. However, it is evident in the Codex Alexandrinus manuscript of the Septuagint, which has angels rather than sons of God, and in the Genesis Apocryphon of the Dead Sea Scrolls, as well as in certain Enoch literature, which have sons of heaven, that where it has sons of God in Genesis chapter 6, the original text may indeed have read sons of heaven. And that is what I actually believe. And that the phrase as we know it is corrupted. This we explained in detail in an essay at Christiania entitled The Problem with Genesis 6, 1-4. Reading sons of heaven as a reference to the previously fallen angels who are called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis chapter 3. All confusion regarding the meanings of this chapter of Genesis is removed. We shall return to this point as we finish with Bertrand Compare's sermon in the near future. Yahweh God be willing. As I'm as I said earlier this evening, I'm not sure if I'm going to complete this sermon next week or if I'm going to complete Ecclesiastes next week and this sermon after that. We'll see. Uh, either way, I pray we finish them both in the next couple of weeks. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Never the God of the Jews, the eternal enemy of the Jews. And good night.